or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. We're looking at this issue of communion, and this morning, I'll I'll remind you that in the second service here, uh, the main service, we will be partaking of communion. So this is really great that we can finish up this section on communion before we participate in the bread and the cup this morning. Um, As I think about the... This section we saw in verses 17 through 20 that there was great division in the church. The communion services that they held in the early church evidently always had a common meal beforehand. And we saw in verses 17 and 20 that evidently some were coming early, eating all the food for the common meal, and actually getting drunk off the communion wine. And those who were coming later probably the poorer among them, those who had to work and could not get there early. They were uh, going hungry, not getting any food, and coming to a, a really a, a, a drunken mess that had nothing to do with honoring the name of the Lord. And that's why Paul said, that when you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper. And there's a continuous phrase in this passage, in this section, three times in verses 17 through 20, When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together as a church, verse 18. Verse 20, when you come together in one place. And we see that there was self-indulgence in verses 21 and 22. They came together uh, for what some referred to in Jude, in the book of Jude, as a love feast, a time where they were to express love towards one another and to the Lord. Um, But verse 21 says, one is hungry and another is drunk, which is why he rebuked them. It is not the Lord's Supper, he says, verse 20. You may call it the Lord's Supper. It may look to some like you're partaking in the Lord's Supper. You may tell others you're going to your church to partake of the Lord's Supper, but that is not the Lord's Supper. That is not something the Lord instituted. That's something that you are doing that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And last week, we began to look at seven details about the Lord's Supper that would help us to participate in it in a more meaningful way. And we saw that it was instituted by Christ in verse 23. It was contrasted with betrayal in verse 23. It's associated with gratitude. It's commemorated for remembrance in verses 24 and 25. It's designed for proclamation in verse 26. It anticipated the Lord's return in verse 26, and then verses 27 through 34 is our text this morning, 
it is demanding a self-examination. And so we're going to talk this morning about self-examination and the kind of self-examination that's appropriate prior to partaking in the Lord's Supper. There are benefits of self-evaluation that we'll see, and there are three in this passage, three benefits to self-evaluation that will help us to avoid the same abuses that the early church had in Corinth. Um, We'll also help promote a sense of uh, appreciation and and beauty in the Lord's table. So the first benefit of self-examination is that self-examination prevents guilt. Self-examination prevents guilt, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 27 begins with that word, therefore. It's a continuation of this entire argument. And we have this word, unworthy. Unworthy. It's an interesting word. It's related to the word which was used for a scale where you had one thing on a, you know, a weight. The word actually could mean weighty, but it's an idea that you have this scale that's to be balanced and you have one thing on one side. You have to put something on the other to bring to the equal weight so that it's worthy, it's weighty, it's the same weight. That's what the word has in its uh, association. Um, does it balance out? The King James translated this word worthily, and it was not really the best translation because I think it led many to believe, and I think there's some of this in the church today where we think about coming to communion worthily or unworthily, and we mistaken the idea that the word worthy there might be some sort of adjective instead of an adverb. Adverb describes the verb, an adjective would describe the noun, and if the noun is us, it doesn't describe us. It's not telling us that we need to come in a worthy manner, uh, that we need to be worthy, in other words, that we of ourselves are somehow worthy of the cross. It's only by grace that Christ died for us. He didn't look down and say, well, there are some people that are worth dying for. Look how good they are. And so... Uh, I think that sometimes um, people, sometimes before communion, can be very introspective and say, um, you know, I'm such a sinner, I'm, I, I, I'm not worth this, but I should be worth this. Or somehow they're thinking of their own worthiness. And that's really not the focus here. It's the manner, which is why New American Standard, many other translations add the word manner to it, that it's a worthy manner, describing the the way that you participate in it. So just to help us understand this a bit more, what are some ways that you can come to the communion table in an unworthy manner? Yes. Yeah, mindlessly or, yeah, mechanically, I would say, mechanically, just not thinking about it at all. Just going through the motions. You come to church, there it is. You've done it a hundred times before. You just take it. You're not thinking about it. You're just going through the motions. That would be an unworthy manner. What would be another way that we could come to the communion table in an unworthy manner? Yes? 
yeah, not connecting it to Jesus. In fact, you might say flippantly, uh, just in a, in a cavalier way. I heard about a youth group that decided to have uh, communion at their camp and uh, didn't have any of the elements with them, so they used Coke and Oreos as the elements. And it just reeks of not really thinking about what this is about. Um, it's, it's, it's not to be done in a flippant or cavalier way or without an association with really what it's about. Another way you could say that is ritualistically, where it's just a ritual, or somehow there's this idea that if you're really solemn and you go through this, honoring the ritual of it, that somehow God is pleased that you're doing the ritual. What's another way? Yes. With unrepentant sin. Yeah. So um, uh, thinking about sin in your life, and uh, I think there's a, there, there are some extremes here because I think on the one hand, I think it would be wrong to say that sinners cannot come to the table. On the one extreme, it would be wrong for you to say, oh, well, I'm a sinner. I've got sin in my life. I really shouldn't come to the table. We're all sinners. And the table, sin shouldn't keep you from the table. Sin should drive you to repentance so that your heart is right as you come to the table. On the other end of the spectrum, you can be very um, mystical about your approach to the table where you think that somehow the elements themselves impart grace to you and somehow take care of that sin or maintain your salvation or even save you, that there's something special or mystical about the elements themselves. So those, are, those would be the two extremes you'd want to join, uh, want to stay away from when you're thinking about your own sin. Um, the, the, along with that, uh, you could come to it heretically, um, believing in some sort of works righteousness, that communion itself is what saves you, or hypocritically, um, concealing sin, not repenting of sin, and yet trying to hide it from God and those around you. Or knowing you're not a Christian and partaking of it as though you were a Christian. Um, Or not understanding it and partaking in it as though you understood it because you're embarrassed that you don't understand it and so you're just, you find it easier and then to ask somebody, I'll just do it. Or doing it for show somehow trying to impress someone else. So we've, we've talked about unworthy ways, ritualistically, mechanically, flippantly, mystically, heretically, hypocritically. But I don't think that's really what this passage is talking about. The focus of this passage is another unworthy manner. And that unworthy manner is selfishly not caring about others in the body of Christ. That's really what the whole context is about here. 
This is why they experienced severe discipline. It's because they were thinking about it individualistically, not caring about others. They excluded others in their worship. They were not concerned about some members of the body. It's evident. We read passages earlier and as we were looking, and I just reviewed some of them this morning, that some were going hungry. So there was a lack of care for others. Some were drunk. Again, it's astonishing that the drunkenness is not really the focal point of the condemnation here or the, the, the confrontation rather than condemnation by Paul. It's rather the fact that even though drunkenness is sin, it's the fact that they weren't caring about others. They were superficial. They took it lightly. They were not serious about it. I read a quote by Spurgeon, and it struck me as, a, as an interesting quote because Spurgeon is often very theological, often very pithy, um, uh, very... Um, He's a wordsmith, so it's, it's, it's usually very um, poignant. But when I came across this quote, I liked it because it was emotional. And I don't see Spurgeon being that emotional of a preacher in his quotations anyway. But um, uh, I liked it because I think that there is a certain emotion involved. And he, when he came across the words, do this in remembrance of me, Spurgeon said, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus till you feel that he is with you, till his joy gets in your soul and your joy is full. Remember him till you begin to forget yourself, our temptations and your cares. Remember him till you think of a time when you will remember when he will remember you and come into his glory for you, remember him till you begin to be like him. This is one of the reasons why we know that communion is merely a symbol, is that Jesus told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. It was something which should remind them of him and his death, his sacrifice, his blood, his body, which is for you. So that's something, though, that the, the Corinthians had forgotten. It's something that we're in danger of forgetting. And they had forgotten it. And so Paul says in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood. Now, the body and the blood refers to his death. How can you be guilty of Christ's death? What is the guilt here? Um, and, and again, this word is an interesting word because it, 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 it can be used in two ways. It can, used, it can be used to describe guilt. It also can be used to describe liability. Um, if, uh, if you borrowed my car and you were driving uh, on the freeway or on a, on a on, let's say, on a, uh, one of these red lights. I must use the African term there, one of the robots. Anyways, one of these, these red lights where you had a camera, you know, and it can take pictures if you run the red light. If you borrowed my car and you ran the red light and the picture came to me in the mail 
and it had my car, but you were driving it, and you ran the red light, and there's a ticket for, I don't know how many dollars, at least 10. And, um, <laughs> and I looked at that. You would not only be guilty of violating the law, but you would be liable for it. You'd be responsible. You'd have to make payment for it. And this word means both of those things and is used in Scripture to talk about guilt and liability. We sang about this this morning. Think about this. It's the second verse of the newer song we, we sang, It is Finished Upon That Cross. Now the curse, has, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome that I receive Boldly I approach my Father, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. I am no longer guilty of sin in God's eyes because I have repented of my sin, turned and trusted in Christ. His righteousness has been placed into my account. He has taken my sin and my guilt And he's paid for it fully on the cross. And therefore, though he wasn't guilty, he paid the price of someone who was guilty. And he was my substitute, a sacrifice on my behalf. And therefore, I don't have that guilt anymore. And I'm not liable. I don't need to pay for my sins because he has paid for them in full. And that's the good news. That is the gospel. And what's so offensive here in our passage is that, um, according to verse 26, this is a time where, communion is a time where we are to proclaim his death. We are to proclaim the victory. We are to celebrate and remember the sacrifice that he made But instead of honoring Christ for his death, the Corinthians were somehow guilty and and in a sense, they were um, responsible for his death because they're they're acting as though the, the people who killed him. They're acting like the people who killed him because he died to unite people. There's a sense uh, where the body of Christ has a sense of partnership, fellowship, gratitude. I think of missionaries who are escaping from a city and a bullet gets fired at them and hits their car. And they find out later and they rejoice because it could have been so much worse. And years from now, they'll get together with those same people and say, remember that time. And there'll be joy and a common partnership. God rescued us out of that situation. That's nothing compared to what the cross rescued from us from. And therefore, the body of Christ should have such a sweet fellowship and a care for one another and a partnership and a unity that we say, remember what he did for us. And so... When we don't remember it, it is in an unworthy manner. And it's as though we're trying to somehow uh, reject his payment for our sins. 
and therefore we must examine ourselves because we shall be guilty. Now, how can we really be guilty if he has paid the price? And that's one of the tensions in this passage. The language that Paul uses can be very confusing, and we'll see that a little bit further down when we look at especially verses 29 through 32. But I want to point out that in verse 28, there's a contrasting conjunction there, which is good because verse 27 is a terrible verse talking about people who should be unguilty, acting as though they are responsible for his death. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So self-examination is so important, but I want to point out that there are three imperatives here. There are three commands. You are to examine, you are to eat, and you are to drink. They are commands. And Paul gave these to the church. Occasionally, people will say, well, I I didn't take communion today because I know of unrepentant sin in my life and uh, I didn't feel like I should do it because I don't want to take communion in an unworthy way. And somehow they feel good about that. And while it's good that they did not take communion in an unworthy way because they really weren't able to examine themselves like they should, the word examine has this idea of evaluate, discern, recognize. But they neglected two other imperatives, which are to eat and to drink. You see, we are commanded to eat and drink and examine ourselves. And so the answer for coming to the table when you have unrepentant sin is not to abstain from the table. Rather, it is to repent of your sin. That's one of the beauties of communion is you have a whole church coming together saying, we want to examine ourselves. We want to see if there's any wicked way in us that the Lord might reveal to us, anything we can repent of so that we can be at peace with one another and glorify him as his body. So we, we, we look at the fact that self-examination should prevent guilt, which is his point with verses 27 and 28, is that if you examine yourself, you prevent guilt. If you don't examine yourself and you partake in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of sin. And you're guilty of acting in such a way that is like those who crucified our Lord. So rather than rejoicing in the sacrifice that he made, you're acting as though he never made that sacrifice. But there's a second benefit for, for, of self-examination. Not only does it prevent guilt, but it prevents discipline. It prevents discipline, verses 27 through 28. Sorry, yeah, 29 through 32. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now, again, depending on what um, version you have, it's easy to misunderstand this passage because the words that are used here sound harsher than they are for believers. Um, New American Standard says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The King James Version says, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You hear that and you say, wait a minute. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says... For there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have been cleansed and washed and redeemed, and you are a genuine believer, a Christian, you will never be condemned for your sin. That includes all the sin that you have committed in the past. It includes all the sin that currently is in your life, maybe that you're not even thinking about or recognizing. It also includes any sin that you will commit in the future. You have been forgiven, and there is no condemnation. You will never be punished for those sins in a condemning way. Never. This is what the Bible teaches. Any questions about that? Yes, Justin. Hebrews 10. 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but of terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Um, so let me keep on reading here. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified and has instituted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Uh, Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So it's been a long time since I've gone through Hebrews, and I haven't taught through Hebrews. And my initial thought, and maybe someone can help me here, is that we're talking about um, this idea that even though he's writing to believers, there are some who are unbelievers, and somebody who goes on sinning willfully is an unbeliever. So that would be my, my approach to this passage is see evidence for that within the context. 
I can check on that and get back to you on that. Uh, does anybody have any thoughts on that? Come on, Tim. Yeah, thank you. All right, good. All right. Um, so when we think about, uh, and, and, and the, um, our passage that we're in actually brings that out a bit. And part of the reason why this passage is so difficult to understand in English is because in the original, Paul is doing a little bit of a word play. He has a play on word here. He uses the word judge or judgment seven times in this section. Just take a look at it with me. Uh, verse 29, for he who drink, eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Uh, if we judged ourselves rightly, it says in verse 31, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. That's the fourth time. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined. That's a different word there. So that we will not be condemned. And that is another word for judgment. It's the same word. Sorry, that's the sixth time that the word judgment is there. Um, we will not be condemned along with the world. And that condemnation, our verses uh, change it from judgment to condemnation. It's, it's a related word. It's actually a different word. Um, and it refers to the final judgment for unbelievers. It says along with the world. So when we look at this passage... The seventh time, by the way, is in verse 34, so that you will not come together for judgment. So you're reading this, and this word for judgment keeps on coming out here, and you're saying, what is he saying? And um, what he's saying here is that um, if we judged ourselves rightly, let's read it again, verse 31. If we judged ourselves rightly, that is, if we evaluated um, ourselves rightly, discerningly, okay, um, then we would not be judged. And that judgment he's talking about is discipline. Verse 32, fatherly discipline. Um, before we get to that, I want to I talk a little bit about the fact that, actually, no, I'll, I'll get to that. I want to point out the word body in verse 29. Um, so I'll come back to that. But I want to talk about discipline because self-examination prevents discipline from God. But when we talk about discipline from God, it doesn't mean condemnation from God. Condemnation is for unbelievers. You will never be condemned for your sins. You will never, ever be condemned for your sins. If you were to be condemned for your sins, then why did Christ die on the cross? It was not sufficient. Or, or God is, is charging you twice for your sins. You've got to pay for them, and Christ has to pay for them, and that cannot be. And so when we think about discipline, though, discipline is different. Um, verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And that discipline is a fatherly discipline. Um, when I disciplined my children when they were younger, even if I discipline them now with different means, usually car keys and so forth, but uh, uh, I don't hit them with car keys, but I... I <laughs> Just to be clear. Um, but when we think about discipline, it's not that they're kicked out of my family. It's not that they're banished or condemned uh, on the street. I, as a father loves them. We think of Hebrews 12, 
4 through 11, let me just read Hebrews 12, 7. It says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons for what son is there whom the father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline of which all have been become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to fathers, to the father of spirits and live? So God disciplines his children as a father would discipline his children out of love. And I mean, just to give you an idea of this, I mean, when, when, when my kids were young, uh, we would often talk about the fact that God has asked me to discipline them. And I would ask them, you know, hey, do you know what you did wrong? And they would say, yes, you know, and I'd say, okay, well, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You tell me what you did wrong, you know, and I hit my brother or wh- whatever it was, right? Uh, okay, so you know what you did wrong. Um, and you see, you know, when you um, disobey, you are not, you're, and we talk about the circle of obedience. We talk about the fact that you are out of, you're not in the place where God wants to bestow his favor on you the most. God wants his children to be obedient. And he's asked fathers to discipline their children. And so therefore, when you are not doing what God would have you do, I discipline you so that you could be in that place back there where your heart is soft and sensitive to the Lord to do what he would have you to do. And uh, then I would discipline them. And if they would, if I said, are, are you ready to go ask your brother for forgiveness? And if they said, no, I'd say, okay, well, my father wants me to discipline you some more until your heart is right. And then until the point where they would say yes, and they would, they, then, then I would pray with them, hold them and pray with them um, and, and, and encourage them. That, okay, now let's go ask for forgiveness from the person that you offended because you've sinned. You've sinned against God. You've sinned against your brother, and it's time to get right with both. So that's what discipline is like. Um, we often wish we could just skip the discipline and go straight to the, hey, is your heart right, and hug you, and, you know, and, and, and all of that. And, um, and there, were, there were times where we, we would take them, and I, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I, I, uh, um, I would say, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you grace. You know? Well, what about the others? Well, they know. I said, well, let's just act like I'm, you know, whatever. So um, <laughs> behind closed doors. Um, Probably not the best idea, but um, it's good memories. So, um, but you understand discipline was for a purpose, to bring them in a right place with God, to protect them. And it's for training. In fact, the word here for discipline is a word that's used as training. The same word, the form of it is found in Ephesians 6, 4. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. It's like a coach disciplines his athletes to train them. Fathers, mothers discipline their children to train them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so the church in Corinth were not discerning the Lord's body. And this brings us back up to that word in verse 29. Take a look at it. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, that is discipline to himself, if he does not evaluate or recognize or discern or judge the body rightly, what is the body there? And I think that this is difficult because the body there could refer to the body of Christ, 
But the body of Christ is the church. And I think that this word body in this context is specifically, or at least it is primarily pointing towards the church. Let me give you some reasons why. First of all, back in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, it says, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 is a passage. It's it's a foundational passage that he mentions prior to chapter 11 because he's talking about idolatry, and it's important to get idolatry out of the body of Christ because it affects the church of Christ, and the church is to be one, and the fact that there was one loaf of bread symbolized that there is one body, and we're all a part of that body. And so the emphasis in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17 is on the church. And that's with idolatry, that's with, in chapter 11, that's when it comes to looking after people in the church with communion and and common meals. And that even goes into chapter 12, there's a huge section in 12 on unity of the body. So I think that Paul is setting up his case earlier in chapter 10, verse 17. Also, oftentimes when it's talking about body and blood, meaning the sacrifice of Christ, Body and blood is found together. But in the second part of this verse 29, we don't have body and blood together. A third reason is how do you judge the body? Are we to judge and evaluate Christ and his death? There is a sense in which you could recognize it. And so there may be a sense of that here. But the context beforehand and after is all about the problem of division in the church. They were not honoring one another. Yeah, question. Yeah, I, so I, I hear what you're saying. I don't think that, that he's trying to give equal treatment to both because this whole section here is about a problem in the church where they didn't care for one another. Now, there is a sense in which you examine yourself, but it's not completely introspective. You're looking at your own heart to see if you're treating others poorly. And so there's that related thing. And that's why... but the. The, the question about the body, I think you're evaluating others in the church. So, yeah, if there's, if there's one in this context that has more of an emphasis, the question is when you use their body there, are you talking about Christ and his death or are you talking about the church as the body of Christ? That's the, that's the tension in, in verse 29. And I really think there's a focus on the body of Christ as the church. And I think we miss that. I think we miss that when we take communion. Because when we take communion, we're thinking about ourselves. And we're thinking about, is there anything in me? And I've got to be right. And the emphasis of this passage is, is there anything in our church among me and my relationship with others that is not right? 
Now, if you are not right with God, that does affect others. So there is a sense where, yeah, you've got to look at your own sin in your own life. But there is no sin that does not have consequences, and consequences often affect others. It's hard to think of a sin that you commit that wouldn't affect others. Because when we sin against Christ, even if we think nobody knows about this, you, Christ knows about it. And you are the leaven, according to 1 Corinthians 5, in a body that spreads and affects other people. Yes, question. Yeah. So the question is, uh, do I make it right before or after? If you can do it before, do it. All right. We have examples in Scripture of similar passages. Turn with me to um, Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-three. Matthew chapter five, verse twenty-three, where it says, "Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and I just want to make clear here that the altar is not communion." The altar was something in the Old Testament sacrificial system that pointed towards the death of Christ. Communion is something that the church does that looks back at the sacrifice of Christ, but the altar is not the same as, even though the Catholic Church, some Anglican churches call communion the altar, I think it's, it's, it's not a parallel. But therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, the idea is you're worshiping, okay? Um, And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So there is a sense in Romans chapter um, 12, uh, do everything you can. As, As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can't always guarantee reconciliation. But you can make sure, as far as it depends on you, that you are going to be at peace with them, and you're going to go, and you're going to ask for forgiveness. You're going to ask, have, you, have I offended you? Um, and I, I told the story a couple of weeks ago of a pastor who was getting ready, and he shared in our chapel service at the seminary that he, he just was burdened because he had this, this uh, church member who was lighting him up on Facebook, and it was obvious that there were tensions, and he found her before the service and said, I don't feel right about about." Uh, being the leader of communion today, I want to make sure there's nothing between us. And she says, there's nothing, please forgive me. And he, you know, that's the kind of thing that should be happening in the church. Um, if you look at Mark 11.25, we have an example similar. But in Mark 11.25, it says, whenever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you your trespasses, and then it goes on in verse 26 to talk about, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. There's something different between parental forgiveness and judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness has been taken care of at the cross, and God will never judge you as a judge condemns a guilty prisoner. And yet as a father will continue to discipline his child until his heart is right, so the father will continue to not forgive you 
and continue to discipline you until your heart is right as a father. And one of the keys that you see in these, these passages for parental forgiveness is the word, are the words father and brother, and they use family terms often when that is, is, um, is given. So when you come across one of these passages, there are several in the New Testament that talk about neither will your heavenly father forgive you. It's not talking about judicial it's parental. There's another one in Matthew 18 where it's even clearer that we could go to. But the point is that in Matthew, Mark 11, 25, you're standing there and you forgive, and there's, there's no need for, to go to them or for them to come to you. It's done. You're right. And I would say that um, when it comes to division in the church um, and you, you, you just don't have an opportunity to if you, if you say, Lord, please forgive me, and I am going to go this week and meet up with this person, I think, I think you're okay. I think it'd be better for you to eat, take and eat and do that. Now, if you don't do that, if you don't go that week and try, as much as it depends on you, to reconcile with them, that's an issue. Sometimes people have questions about habitual sin. Well, every time I have communion, I, I repent, and every time I also then do it again and again and again. Well, we again are, it's not just you. You're not the only one here living the Christian life. You are among a body. And so therefore, if you find yourself trapped or enslaved to a habitual sin, and yet Romans 6 says that sin shall not have dominion over you, you should actually uh, repent of that sin, take communion, and then go find someone who will help you. The body of Christ should be able to counsel one another, encourage one another, keep each other accountable, and you, if you have the spirit of Christ and you, sin shall not have dominion over. You can, come, you can overcome any habitual sin. Doesn't mean you'll be perfect. Doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin. But this is, again, I think that what, what stands out to me in this passage is that we've made communion such a personal, introspective thing. I don't disagree that there's, there are things in your heart that you're supposed to deal with as you examine yourself. But what jumps out of this passage is that it's really about the whole body and the unity of the body, and that should be a concern. Notice, though, that discipline can also be very severe. It says, for this reason, verse 30, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. This is not a sleep number. This is not a mattress. This is a, this is a, uh, a significant number of you are dying. Uh, when, we, when we look at this, this is a prophetic explanation that the Apostle Paul had for the reason why some of them in Corinth were actually experiencing some sort of plague, some sort of illness, and some of them were dying from it. And you say, God disciplines his children even through death? Sometimes he does. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that we find it. In Acts chapter 4, we have Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, actually introduced earlier in Acts 4.32, the story is introduced, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul. It's starting about, it's a story introduced by a talk, talk about believers. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira. I think there's a good chance. I mean, the Lord knows their heart. But I think they sinned against the Spirit. They lied. And God took their lives. And fear spread throughout the whole church. But 
I'm hoping to see them in heaven. We have another situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, remember we have this situation with a, uh, a man who is sleeping with his father's wife, possibly his mother, more likely his stepmother. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, it says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, he says, kick him out of the church. Get him out of Christ's domain because he's unrepentant. The problem in 1 Corinthians 5 was not only that there was sin in the church, but that the church was welcoming of it. Everyone's welcome. We don't care what your sexual habits are. We just want you to be together and unity. And unity without truth leads to a really, really dangerous situation. So Paul says, get him out of there. Get him out of Christ's domain and put him in the domain of Satan outside the church. And it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So when God disciplines, even using death, he does it in, in the sense that um, so that for the purity of his church, for the protection of his church, but for the benefit of the individual. If God disciplines a genuine believer through death, that genuine believer will be in heaven. Questions about that? I, I think that one of the questions that comes up when we think about this is, well, um, if, you know, how do we deal with death and sickness in the church? And again, just because Paul had a prophetic example that he could give to this church doesn't mean that we are to go around giving prophetic examples of people saying, hey, I know why you're sick. I saw you the other day. When, you know, right? You know, hey, by the way, <clears throat> I notice you have a pretty sore throat. Do you know that you sinned against me the other day? Um, so uh, we don't want to be like Job's friends unless we're going to be the first few days where they were silent. I think that uh, the idea of, of trying to connect the dots with other people is just not found in Scripture. It's not healthy. And illness and sickness come for a number of reasons, not just because of specific sin that is connected to it or discipline that is connected to it. We live in a sin-filled world that's affected by sin, and there is disease, and there is illness, and there is death. Um, However, if you are ill, it's a good time for you personally to look at your heart and say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me from this? Is there anything in my life that I need to change? Is there any relationship? Maybe you're causing me to slow down because you want me to get my priorities right again. So it's a healthy thing to do for yourself, but it's an unhealthy thing to try and tell others that you know why they're struggling or going through a trial. Um, yes? Justin, go ahead. Yeah. So James 5 That word sick is also translated elsewhere as weak. And so there is an idea that it could be a weakness. And yet it could also be uh, sickness. And so um, it could be weak from being sick. Uh, Let's just take a look at that. What is it, James 5.16? Is that what it is? 
Okay, so um, James 5.14, look at verse 13. Is there anyone among you suffering that he must pray? Is anyone cheerful? He has to sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick that he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord? That anointing, it could have had medicinal value in those points. Sometimes, you know, James is writing to a church, people that could have been beaten, could have need some sort of ointment or something to soothe them during their trial, whatever it was. Uh, verse 15, and if the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray one for another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Yeah, yeah. So it could, so that's why I say that it's a good thing to examine yourself. Hey, you're sick, you're weak, you're suffering. Look to yourself. Is there sin in you? Confess it. Have people pray for you. If that's the reason for it, your prayer is going to be very effective. But maybe that's not the reason for it. So again, uh, I think it's wrong to take that verse and, and, and say to people, oh, yeah, well, you're just not praying hard enough or, or whatever. You haven't confessed everything or give me more, right? Thank you for bringing up those other passages. Remind me not to contact you again or call on you again. For <laughs> Yes, another question up here. Yeah. Um, what sense does God discipline us? Or is there still some sense he disciplines us for Well, God disciplines us in, in many ways, and it may not just be illness, but there may be nat- natural consequences to our sin. Um, we know in Hebrews 12 would be a great passage to study on this, starting in verse 4. It just goes on and on that he disciplines those whom he loves. And if you're not receiving God's discipline, it's actually a cause for you to think to yourself, maybe I'm not, he's not my father. Because he only disciplines those who are his. Um, which is a good answer to also, why does the way of the wicked prosper? It seems to prosper. Why do we struggle? Um, but again, Jesus' discipline is not condemnation. It is not punitive. It is not punishing you for your sin. It is training you for righteousness. And so it's not something that we should say, please never. Rather, it's something, Lord, Help me. I want to live. I want to be more like Christ. One of the ways he refines us is through his loving discipline. My kids growing up would sometimes see other kids misbehaving. And they would say, you know what that kid needs? (laughs) Wow. I'm glad you see that. Now you understand what we see. That's grace. That's good. You see, it's a good thing. It shouldn't be done out of anger. It shouldn't be done with such severity that it causes damage to this sense where it's abuse. It should be done in love. But they do need to feel it. And when they get a certain age, there are other ways besides corporal punishment that you can discipline them. Let's take a look. Let's just get to the very end here. Verses 33 and 34, a third benefit. We've seen it prevents guilt. It prevents discipline. 
But verses 33 and 34, it promotes unity. Verse 33 says, So then, my brethren, when you come together, see that word again, come together um, to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. That is just a simple instruction for those who are coming to the feast, hungry and eating all the food. It says, if you're so hungry, hey, eat something at home before the common church meal so that everybody has something. It should be a time of sweetness, not a time of sourness. And isn't it true that sometimes church meals can become really sour? Well, they didn't say they liked my casserole or, or you know, did you see how much food he took or whatever. And again, it's just a reminder to us that, hey, we're here to celebrate. We're a body. And I love that he closes with the remaining matters I will arrange when I come because he longed to see them. He wanted to be with them. There were other issues that they had asked about. He says, I'll deal with those later. I want to be with you. And there's something nice about a letter rebuking you this harsh, this harshly and yet saying, I want to be with you. So let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time. I do thank you for this passage, which reminds us that um, we, we deserve punishment. And yet we have an opportunity today during our communion time to examine ourselves and prevent guilt that comes from sin, liability that comes from sin, in the sense that we're not continuing to add to our sin if we examine ourselves and deal with relationships that are not right. We, we do know that self-examination can prevent discipline, that can promote unity. Father, we often neglect others. Help us to remember that we need to examine ourselves in a way that help, will help us to come to the table in a manner worthy. Help us to judge ourselves rightly, not only thinking about your sacrifice and us, but about others. We know that this world is headed for condemnation. We rejoice that we've been freed from that. that we've, we're, we're alive, that you've given us grace. It's a reminder to us that we should proclaim your word to a lost world. And I pray that our fellowship here at this church today and in the days and weeks and months and years to come would only grow in their sweetness, that we would truly reflect the unity that you want us to have and that we would be mindful of that and take action towards that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.